Can a mysterious voicemail help solve the murder of a young man? Was there a movie that was so dangerous the FBI destroyed all known copies of it? And the most important question of the week, can you outrun molasses today on Dead Rabbit Radio? Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you're having a great day too. This is another one of those episodes where we have a lot of stuff to cover. A lot of good stuff. A lot of gold, I think. So we're just going to go ahead and jump right into it. Now, so the first story we're going to talk about is another little murder mystery. The last one that I did about Jonathan Luna, that got a lot of positive results. I actually like murder mysteries more than the gruesome true crime stuff. So you'll probably we'll probably start seeing some more murder mystery stuff on Dead Rabbit Radio. So this one is The Death of Henry McCabe. Now this happened in 2015. So very very recent. He was 32 years old. He had separated from his wife not too long before his death, unfortunately. And so he was having a hard time at work. He was having a hard time just in his personal life in general. He went out with a couple friends to go drinking. And what happens is at the end of the night, his one friend, William Kennedy, Henry's like, hey, man, just, I don't know, just drop me off at this gas station. Maybe he wanted to buy more liquor. But it's like two in the morning. His buddy drives him to, because his buddy wasn't totally sloshed. This guy was super drunk, Henry. Henry gets dropped off at a gas station at two in the morning. Disappears. They don't don't know what happened to him. Now, two months later, his body is found in a lake four miles away from the gas station. They had already been looking for him, and they had already been trying to investigate, and they were talking to William Kennedy, they were talking to his wife that he'd recently separated from, and they had some clues to go off of, but it wasn't until they found the body, because, you know, they could have thought, well, maybe he just ran away. They were investigating it as a suspicious missing person, because they were like, this guy's too, basically at that point was too drunk to run away. But anyway, so after two months had passed, they do find his body. He had no, uh, reportedly had no cuts or wounds to him. He drowned. The area by the lake was densely wooded. And that was another suspicious thing. Like, how does a drunk guy, one, walk four miles from the gas station? Well, I guess a drunk guy can walk four miles from a gas station to a lake. But apparently this area, Rush Lake... Okay, and I should have said this earlier, this takes place in Minnesota. So, this is Rush Lake in Minnesota. That Mounds View, this, the city of Mounds View, Minnesota. So, anyways, they find his body, drowned, no cuts or wounds. The friend says, ends up saying, I, okay, okay, I did drop him off at a gas station, but I told you the wrong gas station. I actually dropped him off at this other gas station. So, it was closer to the lake, which is a weird detail of it. Now, obviously... William Kennedy was a suspect for quite a while. The police had suspects. At this point, they've kind of ruled him out. So the other friend who was with them, he had Henry McCabe's wallet on him when the police talked to him. And so he was a suspect. And the friend was like, oh, no, no, no. I took his wallet so he couldn't buy more drinks. So that's actually interesting because why was he dropped? Up? Then definitely why was he dropped up at the gas station? Maybe he thought he had his wallet on him. But the, the case is only about three years old. There have been no arrests made. He's just dead. Now, you're like, Jason, that's kind of mysterious. But that's not like Dead Rabbit Radio mysterious. Like, that's just like a guy died and no one knows why. Well, when the police, again, 
The reason why the police were investigating it more as a suspicious missing person case was because the night of his disappearance, he called up his estranged wife. But the recording is pretty chilling. The voicemail is is creepy. There have been speculation that there is a gunshot heard during the voicemail, which I didn't really hear. And at the end of the voicemail, apparently someone says, someone, someone says stop it. They don't know if it's Henry McCabe or somebody else there. We hear like a growling or like some sort of animal noise, which, which that's the creepiest part of it. Now, it's possible that he was so drunk he was mumbling, but the noises don't necessarily sound like it's trying to say anything. It just sounds like it's some sort of beast. It's possible that he or his phone or both are falling and it's kind of like going through the grass and... And that that's possible. Could have been an animal after him. Could have been, like... I mean, let, let's be honest. It sounds like a monster. It sounds like a monster. Now, I'm not saying 100% it is a monster. But it, it sounds like a monster. It sounds like... He was trying to get away from something and dialed his wife, and this is basically getting his last words. It's possible that he first was called his wife, and then this incident happened. It's possible he was calling his wife because he knew that he wasn't going to make it out of this situation alive. It's possible that he called his wife and fell down a hill, but we don't know. We, we just don't know. That's the mystery. That's that's the creepy part of it. A, a young man passing away, being drunk, his life kind of falling apart, and then drowning. That's just sad. This is still sad. It's still sad because he died and all that stuff did happen. He was having a hard time with his life. But what was going on with that voicemail? Now, I will say this. As a skeptic, the one thing that concerns me about this story there is no other copy of this voicemail that I could find online except for this news report. Normally, when we get weird voicemails, people, like, there'll be news reports on the weird voicemails or on the weird recordings. And then you can also find the raw recording yourself somewhere on YouTube or somewhere online. This recording w was only broadcast on this show. It's never been released to the public. So I find that a little suspicious. Not saying that it's completely fake, but there could be stuff before or after the voicemail we hear on the news report that totally explains it. Where he's like, hey honey, I really love you. Oh, I'm falling down a hill! And they cut that part out. So I am a little skeptical that the only... And when I'm looking online for it, other people are saying, hey, has anyone ever found the raw audio? Like, has anyone have the audio that wasn't broadcast? That doesn't have the announcer talking in it? So I'm a little skeptical, but that aside, creepy. Walking down the street alone at night in an area that's densely wooded and hearing that, whatever was making that noise, hearing that behind you, screw drowning, I would just die of a heart attack. Okay, so the next story we're going to talk about is, th this was weird because, I, you know, I've talked before, I'm a big fan of rap and, and I'm a big fan of gangster rap in particular, but I'm also a fan of political rap. Uh, Public Enemy, Paris, Ice Cube... And then, you know, Rage Against the Machine is also very political, but, you know, they're like a rap rock group. I know that they probably don't like that designation, but I was listening to all that music growing up. And it was interesting because I had never heard any of these groups 
I could be wrong on this, but I could never hear any of these groups mention this book. This book that seems would seem to be so inspirational to these movements, to like black identity politics or black nationalism or things like that. There was a book that came out in 1969 and a movie that came out in 1973. And it pretty much just disappeared. The movie literally disappeared, but the book just seemed to fade out of consciousness. And there's been allegations that it was the FBI who destroyed the movie, destroyed the negatives for the film itself, and suppressed book publishers and bookstores from carrying this book. That allegation's been made by several people in the media and by the people involved in the book and the movies as well. The book is called The Spook Who Sat by the Door. Now, spook is a racial slur towards black people. It's like an old, that's like an old school racial slur in the South. You're a spook. The spook is also a slang term for spy. And what the book is, it's about a young black man named Dan Freeman, who during, so this senator is up for re-election. And the book takes place like in the 60s and the 70s as well. The senator is up for re-election. And his wife says, you know what? We need the black vote. So why don't you, I don't know, say the CIA is racist because they don't have any black members. Senator's like, that's a great idea. So the senator accuses the CIA of being racist. So he wins re-election. He gets the black vote. And the CIA goes, okay, that made us look real embarrassing. Let's get us a black guy. Just one. We only need one. We'll hire him. Then they can't say that we're racist anymore. So they get, and the book is from the point of view of Dan Freeman. So he's a vet of the Korean War. He's one of seven ap- applicants to apply for the CIA. Dan Freeman is looking at these other six dudes, and he's like, these are like the laziest, dumbest dudes possible. But I'm going to be cool. I'm not going to, you know, get all uppity for the white man. I'm going to play the role, and I'm going to get this job at the CIA. And so they go through the training procedures where they show them how to fight and show them how to build bombs and shooting and all that stuff. So Dan Freeman gets the job. They put him in. He's named the section chief of the top secret reproduction center. So he makes photocopies. And what they do is they put him right by the door. He has a desk that's right in the entrance of the CIA. So everyone who walks in, they'll turn and they'll look and they'll see a black guy there. And they'll be like, oh, that's progressive. This book was written in the 60s. I have to, I mean... (laughs) <laughs> they stuff like this still goes on today. But anyway, so he sits by the door. He's the spook who sat by the door. And the visitors walk in and they go, hey, look it, there's that's awesome. You guys got you guys got one? My company needs one. Now, you're like, that's not very dangerous. That's that's kind of just a story of racism and how people use each other and things like that, tokens and stuff like that. Well, what happens, <laughs> that's the first part. Dan Freeman spends his time kind of, you know getting trained more, fighting, and building bombs and stuff like that. And then after about five years, he's like, okay, you know, that was a good thing. I'm going to go back to the city of Chicago and do social work. I want to work with the gangs in Chicago and teach them how to be better citizens. And they're like, oh, that's Dan. That's a great idea. He goes back to Chicago to do social work. He finds this street gang called the Cobras. And is like, you guys are wasting your time selling drugs and doing stuff like that. I know how to turn you into a revolutionary army. I've been trained by the CIA for years. I know all of their tactics. Let's take over America. And so this dude 
the the rest of the book is him building this guerrilla army, like training this street gang to take back the city of Chicago and eventually the rest of the country. It's fascinating. It's a fascinating novel. So they basically engage in guerrilla warfare. They start taking over radio stations and broadcasting their message to the poor people in Chicago that, you know, we're the ones on your side. We're going to help take this city back. We've been stepped on a long time. The book is interesting because it talks a lot about not being a victim. The book isn't about, oh, woe is me. I've been subjugated forever. The book is about not being a victim. Now, Sam Greenlee, the author of the book, has said, listen, I'm not telling people that they need to go out and start shooting cops. What I'm trying to get people to do is to be proactive and not just sit there and complain all the time. He had this quote. He said, One of the things I was trying to say with that book is that gangs could become the protectors of the community rather than the predators, and that the purpose of the film was to encourage blacks to create an action plan to survive in the belly of the beast rather than always always reacting as victims of a racist society. So he did believe that society was racist in general. But to just sit there and be like, oh, no, I'm a victim. He's like, no, figure out a way to work together, quit preying on each other, and survive all this stuff. Now, so I recommend reading the book. The movie was good, but it wasn't as good as the book. It has the limitations of a a book that's this dense, that has this many ideas in it being translated to an hour and a half long film. The book itself is actually quite slim, but I do recommend reading the book. I think it's an interesting look at black culture at the time and an interesting book about like building a guerrilla army. So obviously from that description of the book, you can see why the FBI would be concerned. Now the FBI, I think it's so funny because nowadays people are like, how dare you disparage the name of the FBI? You're saying that they're deep state operatives. The FBI... Listen, man, I love Mulder and Scully as much as the next person, but they've done some messed up stuff to Americans. The FBI, in 1969, the same year this book was published, they wanted to take down the Black Panthers. They went to the Black Panthers and they said, look at this coloring book. We should put this coloring book out. I mean, obviously, it was like an undercover operative Went to the Black Panthers and was like, look at this coloring book I made. We should release this. It's like drawings of kids shooting cops that look like pigs. Black Panther's like, this isn't, we're not releasing this. And the undercover agent was like, oh, okay, sorry, it's just an idea. The FBI then mailed copies of this coloring book out across America and basically said, hi, this is a letter from the Black Panthers. And people opened it up and it was a coloring book for their kids of kids shooting cops. Absolutely insane. And that helped diminish the Black Panther's reach. Because if you got that, you'd be like, I don't want to listen to these guys. These guys are total lunatics. So the FBI has done some pretty shady stuff. And this book came out, and the author was like, listen, I had a really hard time getting it published. Book publishers were being warned not to do it and things like that. Now, that was much easier than getting the film made. Because when the film got made... They had an even harder time landing, like, distribution and theaters. Sam Greenlee said in an interview, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, the FBI was worried about the book, but not super worried because blacks don't read. But when the movie came out, 
blacks do go see movies, and that made them very, very nervous. So the movie got shown for uh, the opening week and actually did quite well. This was before the big blaxploitation uh, genre and films really took off. But the movie started doing really well, and then United Artists, who were distributing the movie, started getting cold feet about it. The, the conspiracy is this. So the FBI began contacting United Artists and individual theaters, telling them to pull the movie. Telling them the movie's over. Then the theaters were, instead of shipping the film reels back to the distributor, which is normal, they were destroying the film reels. So the conspiracy is that the FBI was either ordering, because if you're like a small time movie theater and you get a call from the FBI and they're saying, hey, don't show that movie and burn the reel. You're not going to be like, well, actually, I have a contract to send it back to United. You're going to burn the reel again, especially back in 1969. So the conspiracy theory is that the FBI were destroying the films or ordering the films being destroyed and they were all burnt. They were all gone. So you still had the book flown around, but you didn't have Amazon back then unless you went into the right bookstore or knew the catalog or a distributor who was selling that book. It was gone. In 2004, someone was going through a film library and they found a movie reel the negatives, actually, that had a different title on them. And when they watched it, it was The Spook Who Sat By The Door. The rumor is, I wasn't able to find any verification on this, but as the reels were getting destroyed, they weren't coming back from the individual theaters, someone had the bright idea to take a copy of the negatives and slap a fake name on it in case the FBI came to the distributor to destroy the originals there. Now... They most likely did, because again, there the director didn't have a copy of this movie, the United Artists didn't have a copy of this movie, the last remaining copy of The Spook Who Sat By The Door had to be filed away under a different name so it wouldn't be destroyed. Someone had the bread. It, it, it is quite possible that this movie would have just disappeared if it said The Spook Who Sat By The Door on it. It's now available on, it's actually available for free on YouTube if you want to watch it. Or you can buy it on Amazon. Finding the film and turning it into Blu-ray has gotten more people to go back and look at this book. The author, unfortunately, has passed away. Oh, and the director of the movie never directed another film. He ended up doing some television. The star of the movie never started another movie or never did another movie. There was a movement to crush these people involved in this film. So, the spook who sat by the door. The fact that the government could go in and destroy a book and a movie for 20, 30 years until it popped back up makes you wonder how many other books and movies have come out that some guy wrote a book and released it at his local bookstores in Minnesota and every copy has been destroyed. It just was too much for the political powers to allow out there. How often has this happened, really? How often has this happened? I'm sure it's happened a lot in other countries, but it's weird to think that it's probably happened quite a few times in America as well. Let's go ahead and move on to our last story. Now, I had heard about this when I was a kid, and I thought it was hilarious. The visual of it is super funny. I went and I did more research on it now, and I had to go look at like death totals and stuff like that, and it's it, it's still kind of funny. I'm sorry to say, but it's still kind of funny. So, you may not think... <laughs> You may not think so, but 
Let's journey back in time. Let's get in Jason's time taxi. Copyright. And we're going to drive back into time. We're going to the year 1919. January 15th, 1919, in fact. And we're pull up. We hop out of the time taxi. Now, this is a great time to be alive. It's before the Great Depression. I think the war is over. Or it's ending. World War I's ending, if it's not over already. You're just walking around Boston. You're like, yeah, you know, it's winter time, so that sucks. But, you know, no big deal. Walking around Boston. Now, they had this, in this city of Boston, they had a giant, they, this, they had a giant tank of molasses. Now, it was 50 feet tall and 90 feet in diameter. It contained 2.3 million gallons of molasses. You're like, how how many chocolate bars are they eating in Boston? And probably a lot. But this was used for, like, molasses can also be used to make rum and ethanol. But the I think Prohibition was going on, so they weren't drinking the rum. Maybe the ethanol. And then you could use it to manufacture munitions. So it was just sitting there. In a, and in the area, they also had, like, a a plant that would process it and all that stuff. So it wasn't just like sitting there as a landmark, like it was actually being used. Now, this giant container of molasses had some serious problems. It hadn't been tested properly. I guess you're supposed to test tanks by every so often emptying it, you know, get all the molasses out of it, and you fill it full of water and you check for leaks, and you're supposed to fill it with water all the way to the top to fill for the pressure of it. This thing had leaks. It actually had such bad leaks that people in town would be like, hey, Jerry, you hungry? And they'd be like, yeah, sure. They're like, let's go down to the molasses tank. And they would walk up to the tank and molasses would just drip out of the sides. They would get buckets of free molasses. And then they would just walk. I imagine them like Winnie the Pooh. They're like sticking their hands in the bucket and just like eating it right out of the eating it right out of the bucket. The people who ran the tank were like, oh man, that looks so terrible. Look at all those leaks. We should really fix that. And they fixed it by painting it brown. So you couldn't see the leaks anymore. They're like, that? That's genius. That is such a great idea. That would be like if a doctor like saw a dude stabbed and they're like, hmm. And they like paint you red. And they're like, well, you're not bleeding anymore. So the thing had issues. Now... The coup de grace on this tank of molasses was that it was an unseasonably warm day on January 15th, 1919. Unseasonably warm for that area in January was 40 degrees. That was enough to cause a little bit of swelling in this tank. Now, people were hanging out, like I said, just hanging out. It's 1919. What do you do in 1919? You make dresses, maybe? And run a wheel down the street with a stick? Not die of polio? I don't know. I don't know what people did in the night. I don't even really know what people do nowadays. But anyway, so you're just doing normal 1919 stuff. You're uh, flipping coins and stuff. Whatever. But anyway, so they hear... The sound of like metal starting to give. Now, some of the old timers are probably like, I recognize that sound. Something bad's gonna happen. All of a sudden, pop, 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 pop. It sounded like machine gun fire as rivets start shooting out out of the support columns for this. 
Now, even people who aren't that old know that something bad is about to happen. Now, again, this thing is 90 feet in diameter and 50 feet tall. It smashes into the ground when it falls. A a wave. A wave of 2.3 million gallons of molasses. A wave 20 feet high of molasses begins to engulf the city. People just start booking it. It hits with such force, there is a building, its bottom story got demolished, and then the other two stories just crashed into the wave of molasses. Now you're thinking, dude, molasses is like super slow. It would lose a race against syrup. True, but the force that it fell at and the pressure that it was breaking loose The wave of molasses was going 35 miles an hour. Cars in 1919 didn't even go 35 miles an hour. People were running, but there was no escape from this thing. The the 25-foot wave crests quite quickly, but it doesn't matter because the rest of the city was getting engulfed in about 2 to 3 feet of molasses. Now, imagine getting hit by a baseball bat going 35 miles an hour, but it's only 2 to 3 feet. So so you're only getting hit in the thighs. You're getting knocked down. People were running, and they couldn't outrun it, and they got knocked down. And they're not falling in water where they just sit up and go, that sucked. They're instantly covered in sticky molasses. A train car, a train car got tipped from the impact of this thing. A half mile of sticky, sweet destruction. Death toll. 21 people and several horses killed. This thing was knocking over horses. Now again, you're thinking, okay, yeah, a horse gets knocked down and just gets back up. But because the stickiness, because of the slipperiness, because of the texture of it, rescue crews showed up and they said, let me find this quote. A rescue crew shows up, and this is what this guy says. Molasses, waist deep, covered the street and swirled and bubbled around the wreckage. And again, because houses are obliterated. By this surge. So it's not just a bunch of people like. It's not like a little rascal's prank. Where like the mayor of the town is like whoa. I mean there's. People were getting killed by the debris. Just flying at them. Floating down. It was horrible. Back to the quote. Molasses waist deep covered the street. And swirled and bubbled around the wreckage. Here and there struggled to form. Whether it was animal or human being. Was impossible to tell. Only an upheaval. A thrashing about in the sticky mass showed where any life was. Horses died like so many flies on sticky flypaper. The more they struggled, the deeper in the mess they were ensnared. Human beings, men and women, suffered likewise. So yeah, you're just, you're basically glued to the ground. Forget the fact that it's 40 degrees out. Forget the fact that you got knocked over by a a force going 35 miles an hour. You're basically now glued to the ground. 150 people were injured in this. You're like, Jason, that's really not funny. It's kind of... (laughs) It's kind of funny. Because, again, molasses. Like, so... Yes, people died and horses died and that's sad. But it is funny because... (laughs) For years afterwards... So... Okay, so... For four years afterwards... Whenever it got hot in that city... In that part of the city... All you would smell was molasses. It basically soaked into the landscape. You would be, you would wake up and you're like, oh man, 
Good thing that molasses thing happened 10 years ago, man. That was scary. And you would just smell the molasses everywhere. Be like, ah, it's like, imagine if you smelled a 9-11 every year. That would be the equivalent of that. That might be extreme example, but, you know, people. Okay, so you had people escape who did escape it, successfully escape it, obviously. And they left that area of town. They're like, screw you, Molasses Town. I'm out of here. Then they tracked Molasses all over the rest of Boston. And rescue workers who showed up and were like working in it, they got Molasses all over their shoes, all over their hands, all over their pants. They would take the subway home. Molasses track everywhere. It basically got to the point where anything that was button pressed was covered in molasses because everyone had molasses. All the guardrails when you're walking around had molasses. The whole city got basically covered in this stuff. Not literally, but there was just like handprints everywhere. And you're saying, Jason, that's that's still not funny. A bunch of people died. Yes, yes, I get it. A bunch of people died. The Great Molasses Disaster. Oh, and then, of course, the company said... Um, no, that tank was in perfect order. Anarchists blew it up because we were trying to use our molasses to create munitions. And those nasty anarchists, those foreigners over there, are trying to destroy our way of life. So they blew it up to hurt our country. They actually got sued. It was the first class action lawsuit in Massachusetts history. And they lost it. Because that was the dumbest excuse possible. They did actually come out and admit that it had failed several safety tests. They did try to say the anarchist thing, but again, that that didn't fly. But it had failed several safety tests, and they had to pay a bunch of people a bunch of money. And I would also say, part of their punishment, would they be able to eat and wear nothing but molasses for seven years? And they'd have to sleep in molasses next to a thrashing horse. Punishment fits the crime. Molasses people. So that is the Great Molasses Disaster. The Great Molasses Flood, I guess, is the official name. It actually is the official name. That's what it's known as. The idea of having... If someone said, hey, dude, you want to outrun molasses? I would be like, yeah, totally. I would take that bet in a heartbeat. But again, I mean, then I I didn't know molasses could go this fast. And actually, there was a scientific test. Because people have debated whether or not the molasses was actually moving at that speed. Some kids or some college students did a test and they used a model version of the neighborhood and poured caro syrup. And they said it actually, it's probably more scientific than how I'm explaining it. But they did this test and they said it is actually quite possible that it was going that fast and caused that much devastation. It's not just hearsay that it was knocking buildings off of its foundations. So, Great Molasses Flood. Tasty yet deadly. The best way to die. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at Jason O. Carpenter. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. Peace.